On October 1st, 1903, Nuff said McGreevy and his royal rooters were among the first to pass through the turnstiles to see the Boston Pilgrims take on the Pittsburgh Pirates in the very first championship series between the two leagues. It would be a best of nine game contest. Realizing that this was a golden opportunity to prove the superiority of his new league, Van Johnson ordered the Boston owner to beat Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh had been favored to win, but Boston was aided by a series of disasters that undercut the Pirates. One pitcher had been injured. Their star shortstop, Honus Wagner, was playing hurt. And just as the series got underway, Ed Doheny, another pitcher, suffered a mental breakdown and was sent to an asylum. That was probably the wildest series ever played. Arguing all the time between the teams, between the players and the umpires, and especially between the players and the fans. That's the truth. The fans were part of the game in those days. They'd pour right out onto the field and argue with the players and the umpires. It was sort of hard to keep the game going sometimes, to say the least. Tommy Leach. The Pirates took an early 3-1 lead in the series, thanks to Deacon Philippe, who pitched and won every one of Pittsburgh's three victories, beating the great Cy Young twice. But spurred on by the zeal of Nuff said McGreevy and his royal rooters, Boston roared back, winning the next three games. I think those Boston fans actually won that series for the Pilgrims. We beat them three out of the first four games, and then they'd start singing that damn Tessie song. You could hardly play ball. They were singing Tessie so damn loud. Only instead of singing Tessie, I love you madly, they'd sing special lyrics. Like when Honus Wagner came to bat, they'd sing, Honus, why do you hit so badly? Sort of got on your nerves after a while. Before we knew what had happened, we'd lost the series. Tommy Leach. In the eighth and final game, Boston shut out Pittsburgh three to nothing. By defeating the National League champions from Pittsburgh at the Huntington Avenue grounds yesterday, the Boston Americans made it five victories out of eight games played which gives them a clear title to the highest honor ever achieved in baseball, Boston Globe. The games proved so popular that the two leagues decided to hold a championship series every year. Boston manager Jimmy Collins raised the very first championship flag over the Huntington Avenue grounds. A team from Boston had beaten a team from Pittsburgh, just 650 miles away. But the owners insisted on calling it the World Series. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, friends. Welcome. Welcome to our little show, Graham. Here we call it Good Seats Still Available. It's the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I appreciate you uh, finding us 
across the vast landscape of podcast land and uh, putting us in your earbuds. We uh, we greatly appreciate it. And hopefully we'll keep you entertained for a little while and uh, hopefully induce you to uh, come back. Uh, today we're uh, in baseball land and uh, old timey baseball at that. But as you know, we don't necessarily uh, revel per se in uh, in the uh, the old black and white world of uh, of baseball from the uh, from the early days, uh, just for its own sake. Uh, as we've uh, talked about many, many times, and we, as we allude in the, in this conversation, a lot of themes that keep coming back over and over again and aren't necessarily new things that have uh, popped up uh, in uh, in today's modern day landscape of sports. They're actually issues uh, that are uh, very human and uh, very common, very uh, long lived, and uh, they keep coming back uh, around and around again. And uh, that's what history is all about. And and that's partially why we kind of do some of these uh these conversations and we sort of stumble into uh, these uh, these understandings. And in baseball, uh, there's uh, no shortage of stories. And uh, here's an interesting story that uh, kind of came across my radar. I want to say by accident, but uh, this uh, book came in the mail a couple of weeks back from our friends at St. Johann Press. And um, uh, it's uh, it's about the dead ball era of baseball, something we've explored in a couple of episodes previously. Uh, but in particular, this is uh, a work uh, written by uh, and uh, overseen and edit- edited by our guest uh, today, Steve Steinberg, uh, about the World Series during that dead ball era. And that we're specifically uh, talking about uh, the years uh, roughly 1903 through 1919. And we've talked about the dead ball era. This is literally the uh, the ball was not nearly as lively uh, as it is today. And uh, where, you know, hits and runs were more, shall we say, manufactured uh, and the art of pitching and the art of uh, uh, of bunting and singles and running and sliding and some of those other sort of key elements of the sport of baseball really uh, became honed. But what, what's fascinating in this uh, in this book and in this conversation with Steve Steinberg uh, is um, the writing and the uh, photography that uh, helped build this book. Um, you have to remember, in this era, 1903 to 1919, uh, you kids today, you young whippersnappers, you didn't know there was no radio, right? There was no television, of course, right? There was just simply uh, the written word. Uh, and as we allude in our conversation in newspapers, for example, in New York, you had at least a dozen, if not more, daily newspapers, right? Uh, that was the way people understood uh, what was going on around them. And sports, of course, baseball in particular, probably being the ultimate uh, sport, the biggest sport, certainly in the New York metropolitan area, uh, but also in the country as well, and some legendary writers uh, who were, you know, essentially uh, putting the dreamscapes together, shall we say, about uh, about the stories around baseball, right? So perhaps uh, a little factually uh, embellished, but I mean, you're talking about like folks like Ring Lardner and Grantland Rice and Damon Runyon, and I mean, some of these, some of the greatest writers of that era who uh, began or continued to be sports writers, quote unquote. Uh, during that time. And uh, their writing is featured in this book as as we go year by year uh, into these various uh, teams uh, playing the World Series uh, during this dead ball era and also the photography. And you're going to find out uh, through our conversation with Steve uh, some very interesting uh, photos in here that uh, literally and figuratively speak a thousand words. Uh, these are very rare photos, some of them never, never published before. And again, uh, if you're growing up, if you're living during this era and you're trying to understand uh, what baseball was all about in the World Series in particular, uh, these photos uh, and the writings that surrounded them from the uh, the various newspapers covering these games uh, are, are just a, a, an amazing tableau uh, and watercolor paintings almost of, uh, of what was going on. And 
Uh, unfortunately, the uh, the colors are not there, right? Because it's all black and white. But uh, the stories and the the imagery are certainly there. And this is our conversation uh, with uh, Steve Steinberg, the uh, author, the editor of the World Series in the Dead Ball Era. Uh, it is published by uh, St. Johann Press. And um, we get into it with uh, some teams that uh, uh, since moved on, right? But uh, that's exactly why we focus on this uh, this little show uh, the Boston Americans, uh, now, of course, the part of the Boston Red Sox and the Philadelphia Athletics, which peripatetically are now uh, in uh, in Oakland as the A's. And we'll see how long they stay in Oakland, but uh, they have been around for a long time. They feature very significantly during this era, as do the New York Giants, the New York baseball Giants, who, of course, broke the hearts of many New Yorkers by moving to San Francisco in 1957-58. Uh, but the New York Giants and the Philadelphia Athletics, very dominant teams during the World Series era of the dead ball uh, years. Uh, we also get into a little bit of the Boston Braves, who are now, of course, now uh, firmly ensconced in Atlanta or suburban Atlanta, shall we say. And yes, the Brooklyn Dodgers of that era do make an appearance, uh, uh, of course, now part of the, uh, we're now the LA Dodgers, but uh, we uh, we do uh, tip our cap to the Brooklyn Dodgers who were part of the uh, 1916 World Series as well. So that all that and more coming up with our guest, Steve Steinberg, uh, in a couple of seconds. So stay tuned. Uh, some promotional stuff. Let's get that out of the way and get right to the meaty, uh, juicy, conversational uh, tidbits, shall we? SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. That's the place to go for all your favorite uh, sports uh, memorabilia. I'm frankly not too sure how much of the dead ball era stuff you're going to find there. But look, if you're into baseball, look, if you're in any sport, uh, sports for that matter, professionally or otherwise, uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is the place to go. And you're going to get 15% off any of your purchases when you go not only to the site, but you got to use the promo code, of course, and that's good seats, good seats, uh, either one word or two words, doesn't matter. Uh, 15% off uh, all of your purchases will be yours uh, at sportshistorycollectibles.com when you uh, enter that promo code uh, and uh, visit there early, visit there often. Proprietor Dean Mitchell is always putting brand new stuff up there, brand new, old, new stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, the photography that uh, he does is uh, quite painstaking. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it, even if you're just visiting uh, and window shopping. But uh, when you do find something, of course, please use the promo code GOODSEATS for your 15% discount at checkout. Uh, again, sportshistorycollectibles.com. And uh, we thank them tremendously for their sponsorship, and we uh, hope you enjoy uh, their site as much as we do. Uh, and of course, uh, audiobooks, we keep telling you, uh, audiobooks are uh, amazing. Uh, they're great. They're a great way to fill in time when you're not listening to your favorite podcast. Singular, of course. Wink, wink, nod, nod. And the best place by far on the planet to get and enjoy audiobooks, of course. It's Audible. And the place to go to get your free trial, your free one-month subscription to the service, and a free audiobook download to give it a try for yourself. Say it with me, nice and loud, from the rooftops, audibletrial.com slash good seats. Again, audibletrial.com slash good seats. And you're going to get a free audiobook download and a free one month uh, trial of the Audible service. Uh, a reminder, you can cancel at any time. It's basically a no risk proposition. And we appreciate you giving them a try uh, as they will, of course, too. And how many books are there to choose from? Over 180,000 titles. Think about that just for one second. 180,000 titles. I mean, you can't even name those titles like within a month uh, without repeating one. And uh, you, you, that means you're going to be able to find at least one. Come on, one book that you can use for your free trial, please. I mean, if you can't find one there, well, maybe maybe 
maybe reading and, and listening to books isn't your thing, but it should be. And uh, there's only one way to find out. And that's to go to audibletrial.com slash good seats to get your free audiobook download. Do it now and enjoy it. And, uh, I, you know, you can thank me later uh, and, you know, send me a note uh, and uh, and and tell me how much you enjoyed the uh, the process and uh, and listening to an audiobook. And hopefully you'll find something from the world of uh, sports history. Uh, there's tons of great uh, titles uh, in that category. So go for it. Thanks for trying it out. We appreciate it. All right. So let's uh, not waste any more time. Let us get to our uh, fun conversation with Steve Steinberg. He, the author, the editor of the World Series in the Dead Ball Era. Here is our chat. I was very interested in your story on your website, uh, and I, maybe we could start there. I, I'm really interested to hear uh, your personal journey, your story into becoming uh, perhaps uh, maybe as, as a second career, a baseball historian. Uh, but that's not what your, your your original career was. And I'm just I, I think our audience would benefit from hearing your uh, your personal story as to how you uh, came into now being uh, an authoritative figure in your own right in uh, in various uh, nooks and crannies of baseball history. Yeah, until, uh, you know, most of my career I've been in retail and uh, retail management and ha- have had a uh, chain of retail clothing stores that were large stores in smaller towns. And it ended up uh, uh, selling those in the very late 1990s. And around 98, when my younger son was only 10 years old, we basically would frequent card shows. As a lot of kids would like to do uh, baseball card shows and go to card shops. And and I had uh, been with him in one card shop and just noticed there was a box of baseball cards. And the first one uh, that was facing out on the counter said Urban Shocker. And I just thought it had to do with a shooting at some ballpark or something with a name like Urban Shocker. I'd never heard of that name as a ball player. And that's really when I got hooked, when I found out that that was the name of a guy, that the, that the pitcher had gone 18-6 and six for the 27 Yankees. And then when I flipped on the back and realized that he was dead, uh, you know, a year later, it really hooked me. And the Shocker stories really what got me going. And although, ironically, I did not... Uh, uh, published that until almost 20 years later. And at the Sabre National Convention uh, this past Saturday, I received uh, the award uh, for the uh, uh, Sabre Baseball Research Award for uh, for this year for the Shocker book that came out last year. That's that's great. So for, for our audience who, you know, uh, who isn't necessarily as deep in the weeds in, in baseball history, you want to describe what Sabre is and, and how potentially life-changing it was for you and is for a number of folks who, who Right, right. Sabre, Sabre stands for the Society for American Baseball Research, and it's been around since the early 70s. There are still two founding members that were alive. It was a bunch of people that just happened to have been in Cooperstown uh, you know, one afternoon, and they said, hey, let's get together and start this. And Sabre is mostly associated with the Sabre metrics, which and and Bill James uh, is a really the the guy, the man that started that, and that is looking at the numbers a different way, looking at baseball numbers in a in a much more sophisticated way, and uh, even those of us, and I'm one of them, that are not really into baseball numbers can understand, for example, that if you have a ballpark in Coors Field, the ball's going to do different things than it will at sea level, or that if you have a small small ballpark, a batting average might mean something different than in a huge uh, cavernous place, let's say like Chavez Ravine. So sabermetrics began to look at the numbers, began to look at things, really emphasize things like on-base percentage. 
and uh, certainly slugging average. Uh, batting average really is something that, if you think about it, um, two people can have a 300 batting average, and one of them can hit nothing but singles, and the other one can have a mix of uh, extra base hits, and obviously uh, the latter is more valuable. And even looking at things like, and it, it's gotten more sophisticated than that, but Sabre as an organization, even though it's associated with the statistical end of it, has many many members that are really not into the numbers end of it. And I would count myself as one of them that I'm not really a numbers cruncher, even though I can certainly relate to a lot of those things. Some people are into the history of ballparks or Negro league ball or uh, specific uh, teams or records. So Sabre has a number of committees. It's a wonderful organization. And uh, for example, one of the amazing things that Sabre started around the time that I joined was what they called their bio project committee. And, and Mark Armoire, who's now on the Sabre board, he's a member of our Northwest chapter, uh, decided to undertake a goal of having a biography written on every man or, or person that's ever played baseball. And there's now about 18,000 of them. Of course, uh, 19,000, some of them are active. And it seemed like a wildly uh, uh, aggressive, chaotic, uh, almost march. But Sabre now has probably 4,000 bios of players. And the neat thing is uh, Sabre made the decision some years ago not to limit access to those biographies to uh, members. But if you just do a Google search, almost invariably you'll get a baseball reference for a specific person. Baseball reference uh, will come up, which will show the stats for the person. And usually the Sabre bio if indeed that person has a bio, and more and more of them do, uh, it's going to be one of the probably no further down the page than the third, uh, possibly the fourth one. So it really enriches it. And in my case, I'm really interested in, in, uh, in the people and the stories of people that have been forgotten or overlooked, that have maybe fallen through the cracks of history, that someone like Shocker was a, was a star and every 10-year-old kid knew who he was in the 1920s. But uh, now he's been, you know, had been virtually forgotten until hopefully my book uh, had, uh, uh, you know, a part in making his amazing story. Here's somebody that was dying while he was a star on the 1927 Yankees and knew that he was dying of heart disease. So there's a lot of different uh, angles and aspects uh, to Sabre, and the members are really probably, you know, the biggest re receptacle of knowledge of uh, the organization. So give me a sense of the, um, uh, you mentioned obviously the one from, from the book, and congratulations on your award, of course. Um, how do you, um, what piques your interest? Like what's the, what are the stories that jump out and interest you? I mean, <clears throat> obviously we, you know, we focus on this little silly podcast on on teams and leagues uh, defunct and or relocated and otherwise across all sports. There's a treasure trove of, of lots of forgotten nooks and crannies uh, there and the stories that we've unearthed over the last year plus and, and just tons more to come. And, and frankly, you know, new leagues and, and, and teams being made all the time, right? So it's almost like, a, I, I think it'll be sort of an endless, uh, endless loop of, of stories. But I'm just curious as to what sort of particular genre or uh, finely granulated uh, uh, paths uh, are particularly interested. Like what generally hooks you? Is it, is it well, a, well, is well, it first of all, in terms of the time period that I'm very much hooked on, the dead ball era, uh, uh, which goes from 1901 to 1920, especially the second decade of the 20s and the 1920s really interests me. And it's just a time period that... Uh, uh, you know, even though a century has passed, the game in many ways has not changed that much. I think that somebody that came back from the late teens 
and went to a ball game today could probably relate to it. Obviously, there's some differences and changes. And I'm very much into baseball photographs, uh, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And I've always found that uh, the, the you know the photos from the early 20th century, and I've networked and gotten to know very well some of the largest private collectors in the country, as long as well as you know public uh, uh, collections that are out there. And it, the pictures are very evocative, and the writing was very evocative. And I'm really just when I when I find out or hear something about uh, uh, players. So to me, it's the stories on these people that really really deserve, uh, you know, not to be forgotten. And I think they're still out there somewhere in, in the firmament. But, you know, there's, I, I sometimes say that, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of stars out there, even on a very dark night, but uh, not all of them can be seen all the time. So some of these people from the 20s and the teens, uh, you know, their star has been eclipsed by other stars that have come along since then. And their stories are really worth uh, worth worth telling. There's a strong human interest uh, angle to it. Well, before we get into sort of the uh, the, the sort of definition of what the dead ball era is, because I think that'll be helpful to our audience as well. We've, we've touched sure, on the, 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 the early 20s. Modern baseball is considered uh, starting in 1901, and that's when the American League was founded. And there was only one league before that, the National. The American League basically was an upstart. And uh, <clears throat> the National League went to war against it. They finally merged in 1903. Because for those first two years, players were getting uh, very large and high salaries as one league would steal players from the other and then back again. And it was an era when uh, the ball was not real uh, tightly wound, where players choked up on the bat, and probably the typical score would be a two-to-one game. And pitchers were really dominant in that era. Of course, baseball is a time of going back and forth and one way of looking at the history of the game is uh, sort of this ongoing struggle between the pitcher and the hitter. And whether it's a pitcher's year like 1968 and then there's a correction, uh, that's really what the game is all about, the battle between pitchers and hitters. And, and and fielders are in there also. Even now, for example, with the shift, you know, I wonder when more and more players are going to start learning how to bunt. And when there's a shift to the right side, they just bunt down the left line. And by the way, uh, down the third baseline, Babe Ruth used to do it when there was actually in his era, there would be a shift occasionally. And he would be laughing so hard as he ran down first base as he just taps the ball, uh, you know, down to the left side of the field. So coming around 1920 is the beginning of what's called a lively ball era, in part because that's when Ruth arrived in New York and he had been a pitcher and he started hitting and swinging from the end of the bat and after World War I, uh, balls were um, really improved in terms of the, uh, the wool that was used in the, in the inside of the ball, which during the, uh, the war had been gone for war purposes. So batting averages rose, and one of the key things that happened before the 20 season is that freak pitches, uh, which would include things like the um, Emery ball, which is when players would doctor a ball with, with sandpaper, or the mud ball, the paraffin ball, and even the spit ball were banned. And uh, that really gave the hitters uh, much more of a comfort zone and uh, much more predictable paths of the ball. It, it did turn out that the spit ball pitchers that, that were playing before 1920 were finally grandfathered in, and they were allowed to keep the spit ball uh, for the rest of their careers, uh, Burley Grimes being the last one, I think 34. 1934, and probably as we know through baseball history, there have probably been uh, different illegal pitches thrown uh, right up until 
nowadays, but that, it, that was a, a big moment uh, in 1920, and batting averages started to rise, uh, extra base hit, home runs started to rise also. Well, you know, I, I, and I'm not a, I'm not a baseball historian, right? I, maybe I, I play one on TV, right? But uh, I, it would seem to me, as from an outsider's perspective, and not sort of granularly in the weeds or a Sabre member for that matter, um, I, what is it of that dead ball era? Because it seems, you know, by comparison to the later years, you know, kind of uneventful and a little taut, and you know, not a lot of uh, excitement and, and all that. But but clearly, there's there's a lot of elemental baseball history in those two decades what, what is it that, uh, about that era that's intriguing to you well well it, it, i suppose if you're more of a purist perhaps like i am a two-to-one game can have as much if not more excitement than a 14 to one game the 14 to 10 game that the mariners uh played in uh, fenway park on uh, on saturday night um and some of the the biggest names of the game some of the, the some of the all-time greats uh you know played in that era and certainly ty cobb while he did go into the 1920s, did but it, it, it's uh, it, it's an early era, and there has been enough captured in terms of uh, photographs that we can uh, you know relate to it. 19th century baseball, and by the way, Saber has a very active 19th century committee, which is people that are really just interested in baseball, you know, before the turn of the 20th century. But uh, it, it really was an era where. You know, the game was, you know, in many ways quite similar to the modern game. I mean, when the American League and the National League joined forces, that's when uh, foul balls started counting as strikes other than the third, you know, uh, you know, you can't strike out on a foul ball if it's not caught. But um, it, it just goes back to an earlier time, and it's just something from baseball history, and we always hear about from fathers to sons. Of course, now we're also hearing about daughters, but it is just something that is passed along and bonds, you know, generations. And I think unlike, you know, football and basketball, uh, just don't have that re- rich history. And, and so often you're at a baseball game and, or even watch you on a TV and they say, well, that's, that tied the record of Tris Speaker in 1919. I mean, you can't, you can't relate to that early history in uh, the NFL or the NBA. It's just, uh, it's just not there. Yeah. So I, let's get into, to, I, I think I, what I'm, I'm hearing from you too, is that um, this is also an era that preceded uh, the vast bulk of electronic media, right? We're talking about things that were recounted uh, very much in the written form and in the uh, early days of, well, not so early days, but certainly early enough of photography uh, where, you know, proverbially a picture may be, worth a thousand words and i gotta think that there's a lot um i don't know if it's editorial license but it almost feels like it's um it's almost a a, a more uh, fluid and uh, inviting opportunity for somebody who looks at it through a historical and or editorial lens to think about maybe what's going on without sort of the benefit of having every single uh shot and play and and uh, uh, story sort of, you know, overwritten and or socially media shared, right? There's a gap. Right, well, not- you know, radio, radio didn't really even come up until the 1920s. The first baseball game, and it obviously had a very small audience, was actually in Pittsburgh uh, in, in 1920. So before 1920, the fans really depended on newspaper accounts. And, you know, I've talked about photographs here with you for a few minutes, but the newspaper accounts were so different because the newspaper writers the sports writers and the sports columnists really had to paint a picture. 
and they, you know, they, they really, the writing was much more rich, uh, evocative, descriptive, and uh, really had to conjure that up. And so the imagination uh, could fill, uh, fill some things in. I mean, during big games, and this started before the turn of the 20th century, well, until, the, uh, until radio really took over, thousands and thousands of fans would congregate around newspaper offices for big ball games. And those newspaper offices would have huge scoreboards where they would track through telegram or, or later on through, you know, wire, what was going on in a big game. And there would be this big player board. As we got into the 20th century, they actually had little light bulbs on them. So you would watch the progress of a game on it. Uh, and, uh, and uh, because you couldn't follow it on radio, if it was a big game, your team was in the pennant race, even if it was a home game. Not everybody could be at that home game. And, of course, millions of people in the country. I mean, St. Louis was the westernmost uh, town. Of course, that that remained the case uh, up until the 50s. And uh, and many people had never gone to, you know, a major league ball game. Perhaps that's why many players after seasons would go on tours, which were called barnstorming tours, where you actually could be living in Denver and you could actually see Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig because they would come on through and play an exhibition game against a local team or sometimes Ruth would head up one team and Gehrig would head up the other. How much license do you think? And we'll get into the, some of the specifics. Obviously, the, the book we're, we're going to circle around in, in a couple of minutes here is, is about the, uh, some of the more dramatic uh, World Series of this dead ball era. But before we sort of get into that, um, I, I'm wondering in your research, um, the writers that you're talking about and the photography that you're, 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 you're accessing in, as you go back in time, uh, the writing in particular, um, how accurate do you think, based on all of your readings, was that writing or how much, shall we say, creative license was taken, do you think, and, and maybe embellished and or is there really no way to know? Well, I think, you know, what happened on the field is uh, we don't have, obviously, film and, and repeatedly, certainly they were on a bigger stage in the World Series. There'd be close plays and controversial plays, you know, you know, was he safe at first base? Was that a, a pass ball or a wild pitch or was that a foul ball or a hit, hit batsman? Uh, you know, we don't know. I think most of the facts, you know, are usually gotten fairly right. But uh, the, the writers of that era, and many of them are young, and even the sports editors were guys that started in their 20s, you know, really embellished the game and embellished the players. They built up heroes back then. And one of my favorite quotes uh, came from a, a well-known book by Frederick Lewis Allen uh, only yesterday where he looked back at uh, the first 25 years of the 20th century, and he tells the story there that when the Great War, when World War I ended, a little boy turned to his dad and said, Dad, you know, what are they going to put in the newspaper now? Because the newspaper was full of pages of the Battle of the Somme or wherever in, the, you know, in Europe. And what basically happened is sport pages really exploded and baseball celebrity rose. And uh, ball players were basically made to be larger than life. And I think the sports writers had a lot to do with that. Nowadays, obviously, there's a lot more critical coverage. And the sports writers realize that the more they make Babe Ruth heroic, you know, the more newspapers they're going to sell, the more papers they sell, you know, maybe the more money they get. And the writers became, uh, started coming into their own until the war. Very often there was not a, a byline with the name of a writer. Uh, but once the writers, you know, things expanded and, uh, and of course that was the celebrity in all sports, whether it was Jack Tilden in, in uh, tennis or Bobby Jones in golf or Jack Dempsey in, 
you know, in boxing, Red Grange and football, that really was after the war. And of course, people wanted, you know, some respite from all that terrible war news. And those writers had a big hand in that. There was not a lot of uh, controversy that was uh, explored. It was uh, making these men heroes. And and we have to remember that at that time, baseball really owned the you know the the the, the country in terms from a sports standpoint. The baseball, uh, basketball, football were really you know very minor things. Uh, boxing was quite big, but that you know really didn't happen that often, and kids really didn't get into it that much. Horse racing was even back then very big, but again that was uh, you know a limited appeal and uh, just specific times. Baseball really uh, was what dominated uh, American culture. Yeah, in that writing, though, would you would you call it, would it rise to the level of, uh, for lack of a better word, complicity, right? I mean, I, where is, is the journalistic eye sort of sharpened there? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it's more background and story and, and embellishment to make things more interesting and heroic, perhaps, than they may Yeah, be. I mean, complicity has sort of a little bit of a negative uh, tinge to it, but there's no question. I mean, the sports writers, I mean, one even today could say, well, you know, the sports pages, uh, if, if you follow a team, it's almost like free advertising for the team the, when, it, when it's covered. But I think, uh, there, yeah, there was a partnership, and, uh, and uh, it was uh, obviously the last World Series of the Dead Ball era, which was uh, the Black Sox scandal when eight members of the Chicago White Sox who were heavily favored basically uh, uh, got connected with gamblers and did not, not only didn't do their best, but helped the White Sox lose to Cincinnati. That was a very difficult, you know, event, and and uh, it was covered up uh, quite efficiently. And it was almost only by accident that a year later that the Black Sox scandal got got exposed, and baseball's governing body uh, changed uh, to a, a new commissioner system. So, uh, yeah, dirt wasn't going to be if there was some, you know, wasn't going to be publicized and yeah it was romanticized and and they helped romanticize the game and for the benefit of our audience can you uh, give us some of the some of the names frankly of some of these writers because some of them are go beyond just being sports writers at the time right they sort of went on to be writers of some right well movie. well some of them and certainly in our dead ball world series books were people like ring lardner damon runyon who went on to write uh, a lot of plays and damon runyon was a big new york sports writer uh, in the teens for one of the Hearst newspapers. And Haywood Brune, some of us older listeners might remember from Wide World of Sports, there was a gentleman called Haywood Halber who used to wear these funny, colorful jackets. That was Haywood Brune's uh, uh, son. And those were some of the more famous ones. And uh, some, of, some of the writers were more known to just uh, to baseball fans like uh, Tim Murnane, uh in, you know, in, in Chicago. But a lot of the the writers were really um, terrific writers, even though they weren't as well known. And again, until uh, you know, the ni- in 1920, and you'll see that many newspaper articles did not have the name of the person there. So we don't even know who really wrote some of the articles. We just know it's the Philadelphia, Philadelphia uh, Inquirer, and it may say on top, special to the Inquirer. And uh, so we don't know. And certainly even more anonymous than the writers were the photographers who are virtually unknown from that uh, from that era. Uh, they, they didn't uh, there would never be a credit next to it. But as some of these people like Haywood Brune, there were well-known writers like Sid Mercer in New York, Sam Crane 
in New York and Crane actually played Major League Baseball in the 1880s, these guys became got big followers. And every now and then, uh, one newspaper would raid a big name from another newspaper and uh, pay a higher salary. And uh, somebody that was one, yesterday in one paper all of a sudden uh, today is is in a different uh, newspaper. Well, that's interesting. I, and it's also uh, uh, a good sort of segue, I think, into the actual book. And when we're talking about it. it's called the, the World Series and the Dead Ball Era. And maybe you can give our, our audience before we sort of get into some of the uh, the years and the teams and stuff. And obviously, as you know, uh, we love the teams, uh, uh, in this case, uh, in, in, vari- in the incarnations that they used to be, right? Not necessarily their current incarnations. Again, for whatever sure. reasons, we pursue these things. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, give our audience a sense of sort of the, uh, the tonality and the format of of how this book is laid out, because uh, you do rely very heavily on uh, newspaper accounts. Uh, yeah, we've re- we decided, or, or basically, in getting involved with the book, I decided there are so many books that have written about the World Series. I probably have in my library about twenty of them. So the last thing I really think that baseball uh, a baseball library needs is another book. Uh, just, uh, uh, you know, telling what happened in this series or that series. But there were two things. Wanting to showcase the sports writers of the time and not necessarily trying to get every play or even every key play, but letting the reader go back and, and, and get a sense of what it was like and basically just taking the newspaper columns from the day and the only thing as editors that we've added is for each game in a series, we'll have uh, a comment at the beginning. Christy Mathewson was the win- you know the the uh, Giants played the Athletics, and uh, Christy Mathewson was the winning pitcher, and some uh, Eddie Plank or whoever it might be was the losing pitcher, and let it go at that, and let the let the sports writers of the time tell the story. At the same time, the book marries that unique commentary with some very, very rare photos. And many of them have not been seen for a century. Many of them may have last been published when they were published the first time, oh, during a World Series, drawing on collections. Uh, again, some uh, may be publicly accessible. Many of them are uh, in the hands of private collectors. And uh, so it's really letting the sports writers and the photographers uh, tell tell the story at one time and it didn't make it at the end but a working title that I had for the book was from the lenses or from the pens and lenses of those who were there because the book's really being told by the newspaper writers and the photographers who were there yeah uh, and just to give our audience a bit of a sense here and I actually use this maybe as a as a uh, as a pivot into uh, into a couple of the teams because obviously the uh, the uh, the athletics and the giants of that era were uh, very commonly uh, found in these various World Series, and we'll get to them in a second. But sure. I'm just going to read this, and not to bore the audience, but it's hardly boring because I think it's, it's tremendous writing. So uh, in your 1911 uh, chapter, uh, uh, co-written or, uh, uh, with uh, Norman Macht, um the Philadelphia Athletics and the New York Giants, he- here's a great quote from the New York Sun. Now, it's unattributed, of course, like you said before, uh, but a uh, great scene setting. New York is throbbing with baseball expectancy. All day yesterday, baseball notables and baseball commenters poured into the city. And what with home and out-of-town fans, New York last night harbored more national game enthusiasts than ever before congregated for a baseball event. Interest in the World Series between the Giants and the Athletics, which begins today at the Polo Grounds, lively for a week, grew feverish yesterday. 
The unwanted animation around the hotels where baseball folk make their headquarters attracted the interest of those not ordinarily keen for baseball, there be some such benighted persons, and the subject of the big diamond battles put everything else in the background. Now, how's that for scene setting, right? I mean, that's like that's that's like that's like a watercolor painting, not a not a, 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 a you know a, a description of a, of, a, of of events. Right, and that is that was a World Series between two great teams, the New York, which are not around anymore, relocated, but the New York Giants and the Philadelphia Athletics, and uh, it also happens that 1911 is probably. Uh, if you had to pick one pitcher and one hitter from the dead ball era uh, who was really sort of would emerge as a star, you'd, you would pick somebody that was uh, fortunate enough to be on a team that was there repeatedly. And Christy Mathewson uh, was, would be the pitcher and Frank Homer and Baker would be the hitter. And Homer and Baker got his reputation, although he didn't actually technically get his nickname, but for a couple very dramatic uh, home runs that were hit, uh, you know, in, in that World Series. And Hugh Fullerton is another writer that I should remember, that I should mention, who was out of Chicago, who actually played a role in uncovering the Black Sox scandal, but he was very big in covering, and he had a following, and he would have his own bylines, you know, going back to, well, certainly when the Chicago Cubs and the White Sox played in 06. So what, what was it? So what was it about the Giants and the A's that made them so dominant during this era? I mean, I'm sure there are a number of factors, but but what comes to mind as sort of being maybe some of well, the well, they, 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 one of the things that that does come to mind in contrasting them with, for example, the St. Louis Browns, and I've been a member of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society for many many years, going back to the beginning of this century, is they had really good players, but they also had really good management, and back in those eras. Uh, there really weren't the business manager was not really like today's general manager. The business manager would be the man who checked the train schedule, booked the hotels, and did a lot of that stuff. But in most cases, it was the manager who sort of was a director of player personnel, general manager, everything all rolled up to one in in one. And in the case of uh, these two teams, if you go back and over the course of baseball history, I think even now somebody would have to say that John McGraw of the Giants and Connie Mack of the Athletics would still rank among certainly the top ten and probably even the top five managers of all time. And uh, between the two of them, they they managed for about 80 years. I mean, Connie Mack had obviously some declining teams in in Philadelphia uh, after the uh, 31 World Series. But these men were very sharp and very shrewd. What makes it more interesting is that they were virtually opposites from a uh, from a personality standpoint. Mac was a very reserved. He was known as the tall tactician. Would uh, very rarely, if ever, you know, yell and scream. And McGraw was, uh, uh, you know, had a, had a very nasty streak and a mean streak on the field, even though he could be very generous. Uh, with former players uh, off of the field. So you had two dominant personalities who were shrewd and who could evaluate personnel and more often than not got the right uh, people. And and I think also both of them realized when a player's time had come, it was time to move on. You know, they started looking for replacements. And this is long before farm systems. So, you know, they just had to uh, sort of keep their eyes and they probably, they did have informal you know, they did have scouting on the staff, and each team, you know, might have Mac. You know, Mac actually had an informal network of people that would say, 
hey, you know, there's a kid on the sandlots of uh, some town in Texas. We need to take a look at him. They made mistakes, but uh, they were right more than they were wrong, and they had just a fundamental understanding of the game. And, and one thing with McGraw that I didn't even realize until I got in my baseball research, for example, the dead ball era is very much, and, and that's the year of this book, signified that a lot of times a run is manufactured in a somewhat boring way. Somebody walks, he gets bunted to second base, he goes to third on a ground ball to the second baseman and comes home on a fly ball. Or there may be a steal in there. But John McGraw almost instinctively never liked to bunt because he didn't want to give up an out. Why give up an out? There's three of them in an inning and they're precious. Now, he did employ the hit and run a lot where the guy at first base would take off. But he wasn't just going to have his player lay down a bunt to get thrown out at first base. These two men had a lot to do with the fact that these teams were in the World Series of this two decades multiple times. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also uh, in my queue, next up uh, is another guest that I'd like to get, uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. All right, let's talk about the Giants for a second, then we'll get to the A's. Um, you know, we uh, we had uh, Bill Young on our uh, episode 36. Uh, uh, the uh, his, He's the author of uh, 
the biography of uh, John Tortoise Chief Myers, uh, part of the wow, yeah, part of that team, right? And um, who you know, as battery mate Christy Mathewson, it was a pretty interesting uh, story. And McGraw obviously relied on 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 them and and uh, for a number of uh, successful runs, not only in the World Series but during the uh, during the course of the years, the, the seasons themselves. Uh, but it also, I also get the sense too um, from that conversation that. Uh, that that you know being in New York didn't uh, necessarily hurt, right? Obviously, New York, in many respects, not only at that time and arguably in years and decades later too, was uh, in many respects the the sort of baseball center of the world, right? And, and it was it was in the center of the world and even outside of baseball. And you're right. And Philadelphia then ranked uh, you know much higher in population at the beginning of the 20th century than it does now. It was a, a large city, and of course Chicago also. I just came back from the National Convention in Pittsburgh, and I presented a paper in the 1908 pennant race, which most people remember as the Giants and the Cubs, because they both were from big cities. And the Pirates only finished one finished only one game out in that year. And yet Pittsburgh players are somewhat more overlooked. They're just not in the media center either. I mean, at that time that we're talking about, during most of this era, the New York City had, I'm going to guess, about 15 one five daily newspapers, and maybe Philadelphia had seven or eight. I mean, there started to be consolidation, you know, in the late teens, certainly in the early twenties. I mean, this is where you wanted to be, and you take a ball player that uh, was a star with the St. Louis Browns, and he's just not going to be remembered as as much as somebody who was a star on the Yankees. It's just it's just a simple fact. Yeah, if I may, if I remember our conversation uh, with uh, with uh, Bill Young uh, correctly, I think Myers was part of like a a, a Broadway uh, skit thing with with Matthewson. They literally went on tour uh, and and did did shows. You know, I mean, it's almost as a sidelight, I guess, but also certainly from a promotional perspective, not a bad thing to get people to go to the games and and check them out. Right, and the, and these these ballplayers were such larger, so larger than life that they didn't have to do uh, um, very much or say very much uh, on vaudeville, and people would want to see them. I mean, one of the stars of the Giants in this era was a fellow by the name of Mike Donlin, who uh, married one of the most famous vaudeville com- uh, com- comedic actresses in, in uh, the, the nation. He even quit one year in 1907, and he went on a vaudeville tour with his wife, Mabel Height. And uh, it, it, these, again, these people were larger than life. Uh, they were really larger than life. Now, by contrast, the A's, not only from Philadelphia being sort of a, uh, not necessarily as a, a much of a media and or, uh, you know, excitement and entertainment mecca as, uh, as New York might be. Sorry for all of our Philly listeners. Um, but, you know, okay. um, I'm really interested. So the A's, obviously, uh, as you sort of recount in a number of these years, I mean, we're very... Uh, uh, successful on a on an ongoing basis uh, from 1905 onward. I mean, and literally from 1910 almost to the middle of the decade, right? Was was in the hunt. Uh, I mean, there was a, a period of time there. They were in 1910, 11, 13, and 14. Um, I, I guess I my question is sort of twofold. What 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 was the magic of Connie Mack and 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 the A's over that period of time? And then I guess the second part of that question, which we got to with. Um, David Jordan in our episode 21, a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. What happened at, uh, in 1914 that kind of, shall we say, put an end to all of it in the years that, that followed, or at least for the, the near-term years that followed? Well, again, Matt, uh, as far as the, the first part of the question, he had some enormously talented ballplayers. And if you look at the uh, performance of home run Baker 
in those World Series. He he, he was just sensational at uh, on the on the big stage, so to speak. And uh, and, and Mac had some really really uh, talented players, and certainly Eddie Plank, who was the winningest southpaw until Warren Spahn came along and broke Plank's win record. I think Plank had 326 wins southpaw pitcher. But the one difference between what the Philadelphia didn't have, and I'm not an expert on it, uh, and David probably more than I do, is that the Philadelphia fans seemed uh, not to turn out. Well, first of all, the market was much smaller than New York. But the Philadelphia, when they started winning year after year, 1911, they, they didn't make it in 1912 when the Red Sox and Smokey Joe Woods' incredible season, 13. You watch the Philadelphia um, attendance start to drop. And in 1914, they were still a great team. It's almost like the fans, you know, became bored because uh, they knew the A's were going to win the pennant. And Connie Mack made the decision that uh, that he was going to sell off his stars. Now, there was another story going on. There was an upstart league. And if you haven't had a feature on it yet, it's really worthwhile to talk about the Federal League, and the Federal League was a third major league that challenged the, the, the two established leagues, ironically, just basically following the American League's 1901-1902 playbook. But, of course, now the American League was established. They were part of the club and, and went to war. And so players were jumping and players were thinking about money, and Mac just decided it was time to, uh, you know, to let, uh, you know, let them go and, uh, and move forward. I think he thought that he could rebuild easier than he did because it took him a long, long time. He thought, again, that he could recruit and find great players on the Sandlots, but more teams were now getting scouts, and Mac had a tremendous comeback in the late 20s, but he didn't do it from finding guys on Sandlots. He, he got it from paying a lot of money for people like Lefty Grove and Mickey Cochran to minor league teams, uh, paying them a lot of money to get these star players. So, so we, uh, yeah, we we had uh, we had uh, uh, Dan Levitt on our show, episode sixty three. As a matter of fact, if you're if you're listening at home, uh, on the Federal League, and uh, I just it it's it's interesting because uh, it does feel to me that uh, you know I, and there are other reasons right for for why you know the A's sort of you know uh, sort of ran their course and then you know went through the the wilds uh, for a while, sort of uh, you know in more abundantness, if that's a word. Um, you know, until the twenties, when uh, when they did come back, and and there was sort of redemption there. Um, but it's clear that 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 you know, even though the federal league only lasted two seasons in fourteen and fifteen, right there, there was a, you know, a body blow, if you will, to the sport and some rethinking of how talent and uh, uh, you know how players uh, got treated and and sort of the fact that there could be some other places where you know there would be some other some more leverage for some of from the, some of these players. Uh, sure, and I think our, our 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 listeners should know that obviously there was no free agency back then, and I'm sure Dan, who is a good friend, explained it, uh, you know, very well. The players basically had a choice: play with their team, or go do something outside of baseball. And there were very few of them that had opportunities, even though ball players weren't like making a lot of money. If uh, uh, you know, if, if a star was making uh, five thousand dollars, I mean, Honus Wagner was making. 10,000 starting in 1908. But if, a, if an average player was making $2,500, and I'm not the expert every year, but I mean, it was still many, many times more than one could make in uh, some blue collar or even administrative job somewhere. And um, 
you know, and, and, and so they played the game. The Giants were probably, you know, a much more profitable team for, uh, for many years. And uh, even when they, you know, were on top, uh, with the A's, it, it was harder to get, uh, you know, to get the, uh, uh, the, the fans to come out there when they were winning consistently and winning big. Well, let's let's talk about a couple of other other teams that uh, sort of fit our little criteria here, and I, maybe nineteen fourteen is a good place to to talk about, right? Because uh, the A's, uh, uh, you know, after having won uh, three out of uh, uh, I don't know the last, I, they did very well up until uh, through you know nineteen fourteen, but they they met a a team that uh, historically hadn't really sort of been in the mix, and and it's been referred to, and we have not done an episode on this. Uh, on this team yet, but it's certainly worth uh, worth investigating, and that's the Boston uh, the Boston Braves, right? Arguably known as the the Miracle Braves of 1914. Um, right, and well, one of the things that we see, and it's probably no different than nowadays, is that you know there are teams that climb their way to the top because they're hungry. And if you look in our book in 1910, you know the Chicago Cubs had been in the World Series, uh, uh, you know, every year except 1909 since 1906. And everybody thought they would take care of the A's, but the A's were hungry. And all of a sudden, when the A's won that series and it wasn't even close, some of the newspapers were saying, you know, long live the new king. Well, the A's reigned for a few years, and come 1914, you know, they'd been in the World Series. And, you know, there isn't that kind of hunger. It's, it's hard to repeat when you've been on top for so many years. And the Braves are a spectacular story. Professor Charles Alexander, who does the foreword to this book, has written a book about uh, George Stallings, really the mastermind. Uh, and again, as a manager, he was much more than manager. He assembled that team uh, and, uh, and and led those Braves. And uh, he was a hard rider, and he stayed on them almost like I can picture him almost like a jockey on a horse, and you know, cracking the whip. And uh, they they came back from last place in early July, and and never stopped. And they 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 blew past the Giants and won the pennant uh, easily, and then swept uh, the powerful A's. And although, unlike the A's, they were not, uh, they were only a one-year, you know, pennant winner. They did come very close the next year and somewhat close to 1916, but they they are a tremendous story. And, of course, people don't realize and remember about the, you know, about the Boston Braves very much. and and they are um, there's certainly a, a wonderful story there. And Professor Alexander would be a great one to tell that story. And I look forward to asking you for a connection to him because we'd love to talk right. to him about his book and all that. Um, so let's uh, look at uh, at these uh, this these two decades of of the dead ball era and the World Series in particular. Is there any uh, any any theme that sort of uh, pops up in all of uh, all of this? Uh, is something that you sort of didn't know or thought you knew and and was maybe. Uh, uh, pushed aside or, or challenged or changed because of the uh, of the uh, the investigation into the uh, the newspaper accounts and the photography that you and your uh, your co-writers uh, came about. Well, well one of the, uh, a few of the things um, really do. I mean, history does run in a circular track, as I uh, I'm so often reminded. There were certain things that that uh, happened then that can still happen now. And one thing is when a star ball player does not perform well. And, you know, we start with 1903. The dead ball era started in 1901, but there wasn't a series until three. And Honus Wagner, who was the greatest player of that era, probably better than Tykov, hit only 222 that year. And the fans really were riding on him. And by the same token, on the flip side, we began to see players 
um, who were just nobodies who all of a sudden in the World Series caught fire. And one of the best ones is George Rowe, R-O-H-E, in 1906. I mean, this guy was a 229 hitter, and he hit triples in two World Series games in 1906 to win uh, the two games and help the White Sox upset the powerful Cubs. In 1918, there was a guy named George Whiteman. He hardly played. He had key hits to help the Red Sox win, and he was sensational in the field. You know, we have one of his quotes there, how happy he was. And he says, you know, even if I never play another game, now I know, you know, I've had my moment in the sun, so to speak. And guess what? George Whiteman did never play another game, uh, certainly not another major league game. So you see that. You, you see, as you see today, hard luck pitchers, pitchers that really played well. You know, I was just thinking, Christy Mathewson had an earned run average, and he played over 100 innings in World Series of this era. He had an earned run average of under one. He had 10 decisions, and he went five and five. I mean, Eddie Plank of the Athletics only went two and five, and he had an earned run average not, uh, you know, not that much higher than 1.0. So you see some of these things happening that, uh, that still happen to this day. There are some differences. One of the biggest differences is that, in many cases, fans were on the field. And uh, the owners wanted to play, you know, to make more money. And uh, there would literally be ropes put in the outfield. And in some cases, there were even fans, uh, you know, down the sidelines. I don't know in the World Series, but certainly in a lot of big regular season games in this era, the fans would be all around the field. In 1908, during the pennant race, you'd have fans standing behind the catcher. And obviously, it would change the game. In 1903, they had to have ground rules, and that's where there were grounds rules. And they decided a ball that goes into the fans is a triple. And the, the, so obviously, a routine fly ball could fall in for a triple. There were 25 triples in 1903. And uh, it can really have an impact uh, on the game, which you don't, you know, you don't see now. And uh, you know, obviously, you had stars that did perform really well. But, um, you know, that is a difference. Uh, the time of the games is obviously a huge difference. Games were just played much, much more quickly. And uh, there was a game in 1908 that took an hour and 25 minutes, if you can imagine. You know, that certainly is different. The A's, when they won the championship in 1913, had 12 men on their, that they used in the World Series, including three pitchers. I mean, that's almost inconceivable nowadays. But like I said, sometimes a uh, star player did not play well. Ty Cobb, in the three years that he was there, at least two of them especially, didn't play very well at all. But sometimes one player made a huge difference. And uh, so some things were the same, some things were, you know, were not the same, but there were dominant teams. And these two teams that you know, we don't have anymore, the Philadelphia Athletics and the New York Giants, were two of the most dominant ones. How about the photography? Uh, some some of the the photos in this book are 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 pretty amazing, and you can kind of stare at them and sort of get lost and 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 sort of uh, hear some of the the sounds and 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 the music and the maybe even uh, breathe some of the air. Some of the how how crystal clear some of these photos are, and frankly, they reveal quite a bit, right? And and to your to our point earlier, right? I mean, there there are no. Uh, there are no sounds, there are no radio broadcasts, there's certainly no television, there's just writing, but also these f- photographs, which to your point is, have, have some of which have, have never really been seen, you know, sort of in modern circulation. Um, what did you kind of 
I, how did you call the uh, the photography into this book? Because I got to think there were some right. some amazing amazing shots there that didn't even make the cut. Well, yeah, there were. One of the really neat things that this book, the World Series and the Dead Ball, originally was going to have about 180 photos. And when I was working with a publisher, uh, and I submitted the different photos, and a lot of them I worked with in terms of cropping them, you know, to make the images, you know, that you could focus. Uh, um, I, I submitted maybe seven or eight extra ones. I just pushed in there and I said they're optional ones. And of course, we, we tried to locate them close to the text so they'd be easily to be related. And the publisher ended up taking all those extra ones. So uh, we end up with 250 photos. There's one private collector in particular, his name is Dennis Goldstein. He's from Southern Oregon. And the largest group of photographs came from him. And in all my writing, I've always wanted, even in a biography that I've written, I want the photos to be as special as uh, the text. And when people see this, and it's certainly the case in this book, uh, and they're really equals, the writing and the photos are the same in terms of being equals. So ideally, I would have liked to say to you, all 250 pictures were taken in the World Series. They were not. Uh, and and they're just, you know, there, there has been a lot that's been lost over the years. The other thing is that action shots were pretty hard to come by because even when the photographers were on the field and they'd be, you know, near the coaching coacher's box on first base or third base. And I don't know if it was just a lack of depth of field, but a lot of times the action photo would just be a cloud of dust. You wouldn't see very much. So what I ended up selecting was taking some photos. Uh, if I was going to have a Christy Matthewson photo and it wasn't from the series, and we do have some that are from, it would be a unique photo. It wouldn't be like a real common photo that people say, oh, I've, I've seen that before. George Rowe, for example, uh, the book has a portrait of George Rowe that was taken, uh, I think, early in the 1907 season. This was the star of the 1906 World Series. Virtually nobody has seen a picture of George Rowe before. So in many cases, I tried to find, if it wasn't in the World Series, then it was uh, you know, close to that era and a seldom seen, uh, you know, photograph, and they really, uh, you know, they they work like like you said. There's a synergy between the photos and the writing, and then you know you can imagine the uh, the cheering. If if it's funny, you had mentioned a quote. If we have a moment, I'd love to read you one I just happened to have here because I I turned to 1911. If if I might, please go right ahead. Um, yeah. So the the 1911 World Series, um, as I think we talked about, was when home run Baker basically um, shocked the uh, shocked the baseball uh, world and uh, and the um, just taking a look here and so when he hit a home run off of Christy Matthewson and this came from the Philadelphia Ledger the vast throng literally went mad for the for the nonce facile pen is entirely inadequate to fittingly describe the wild barbaric scene that was enacted in all parts of the huge baseball arena all was a babble of confusion. It seemed as though the human, the human reason had been dethroned. Great was the hit, cyclonic was the ovation. It will live in baseball history as long as the national game survives. Well, many of our listeners, you know, may not remember the, that that home run, uh, and uh, and actually that may have been his home run off of uh, Rube Marquardt, another uh, star of the Giants. And home run Baker then came back the very next day, and he he went off of uh, off of Matthewson, which uh, uh, so it, it was just so dramatic. Uh, 
and and again the writing the writing is probably accurate but it's very florid you don't normally talk about barbaric scenes or a babble of confusion or cyclonic ovation but those were the words uh that the writers uh you know used all right, two, two things before we sort of round home here, uh, so to speak, or round third uh, as we slide into home. Right. Um, thank you. I've got to get my analogies uh, correct uh, here. Um, I thought 1904, interesting that uh, you even uh, have a chapter devoted to the series that actually wasn't a series. Yeah, one of the things uh, of the, the, the National League was the established league. And in the first year of the series, when rules weren't really formalized, the American League with the Boston Americans basically upset the Pittsburgh Pirates. And in 1904, the Giants did not want to play the World Series. And at the time, it looked like the New York Americans, which are now the Yankees, were going to win in the American League. And McGraw and then the owner of the Giants really didn't want to, you know, even suggest that the American League team was equal with them. And then the Boston Americans uh, did win on the last day of the season. And the Giants refused to win. And we refused to play. And the 1904 chapter, I think, is an important one because McGraw and the Giants were really savagely attacked in the New York press for not giving the fans and the players an opportunity to see them play. And then the very next year, you know, the Giants were uh, back in the series. And then from 1905 on, they started playing the series. There's a photograph in there that I don't think is, is probably one of the rarest photos of all time in, in, in the book. And it shows a bunch of uh, Boston fans, they had beaten New York American League team on the last day of the season. They knew they couldn't play the World Series. The Giants weren't going to play them. They're marching down Broadway with banners of protest that, you know, McGraw and the Giants are cowards, you know, for not playing them. So the Giants took quite a beating there uh, in, in even their own local press. I uh, And the last thing that I just that stands out to me is um, in the, the, the era that you're uh, – that the book focuses on with the World Series uh, played between uh, 1903 and 1919. Um, mm -hmm. I'm struck by the fact that uh, all of the teams, save for 1904, but even even if they were to have played in 1904, all the teams uh, from that era uh, in the World Series either uh, still exist today continuously or uh, exist uh, in other cities, uh, meaning no teams that uh, are no longer with us dead and buried. Uh, they're all teams that are still uh, either foundationally or or successfully or successively uh, still around in in the sport of baseball today. I, it's um it's a pretty interesting testament. I am I is that unique or is that a, am I just making something out of nothing there? I think it's pretty well. So, so of course, some of them were dramatically uh, you know relocated, relocated more than once when the Athletics you know went to Kansas City and now they're in Oakland. So, certainly, all of these teams stayed in their home cities until the uh, you know early 1950s. So, um, you know, teams, I guess I would a little bit um, look at that a little bit more differently because somebody's going to want to have a team. And if there's a, a city that's on the rise or a city that's on the fall, then another city's going to grab it. Certainly in the beginning of the century, Detroit was a very small team. And a lot of people even talked that they were in the World Series for three years, the Tigers, early in, in, in this book thought that Detroit was going to lose. It just wasn't a major league city. Well, guess what? You know, the automobile came along and Detroit, you know, became a fabulously wealthy and populated city. They, when I was in Detroit last year, I was reminded again, I think they have the fourth most valuable art museum in terms of its 
holdings after New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Detroit had so much money then. St. Louis at the beginning of the 20th century had two teams, no problem. But when things got, when boats got replaced by railroads, all of a sudden St. Louis started, you know, declining as as a population center. So teams do, cities do come and go, and uh, and rise and fall. But then there's the, you know, the new city. Um, we we forget when the Boston Braves were lost, and uh, uh, but they, you know, they went to Milwaukee, and Milwaukee became the hot city. Until it wasn't hot anymore, and then the and then the Braves move again. You know they're in Atlanta, so uh, there there is a up and down uh, cycle there of some sort. Well, though, okay, again, if you if you consider yourself a Boston Red Sox fan or a fan of the Oakland A's, the San Francisco Giants, the Atlanta Braves, or the L.A. Dodgers, right? These are all teams that had uh, 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 World Series uh, realities uh, during the dead ball era, and uh, that's what this uh, this book is about. It's it's really. I think it's it's fascinating. I mean, the, the way it's laid out in terms of the uh, the stories, how it's written, uh, sort of in newspaper uh, accounts, and sort of overlaid uh, with uh, some really interesting photography that uh, seems quite rare to me. And I and I suspect uh, will uh, 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 it's it's you can stare at it and uh, and and get some real insight into some of those photos and uh, and the writings are, are uh, the writing just makes. Uh, makes right, a and I think the story. you know the title and the cover speak for themselves. The World Series in the Dead Ball Era. Pretty straightforward, and we have a picture of the dugout of the 1903 Pittsburgh Pirates. Included in that dugout is Honus Wagner, uh, still one of the greatest players of all time. But yet, it really isn't a dugout. If you look at it, it's a little shack. And but that was the World Series dugout of the of the uh, National League champions, and and the Boston Americans dugout looked exactly the same. And their pictures inside the book uh, also. All right, Steve. Here's your chance to promote. Go ahead. Uh, give, give us the name of the book, the author, uh, not the author, the <laughs> the publisher, and all that kind of good sure, stuff. Sure. I, yeah, I I do want to mention the fact that the the book was uh, generated by Sabers Dead Ball Era Committee. That's one of the Saber committees. We literally have a committee with that is passionate about this era. So different members of the committee stepped forward and said, "Hey, I'm going to do 1917." And then went to the different newspapers. May, maybe had to ask other Saber members in other cities send me some information and and obviously we had to pare down the writing there are ellipses in here you know we don't go on and on and then you know then i tried to pull it together i was particularly involved with perhaps a couple of the uh, uh series that um are in here so it simply is the world series of the dead ball era and it was uh it, it's uh, a product of saber the research of Saber's Dead Ball Era Committee, what we call the DEC, Dead Ball Era Committee, and it's published by a wonderful small uh, quality press called St. Johan Press, and uh, it's available through St. Johan or certainly through Amazon, and uh, it's really a unique kind of a a book, and it it happens. It's not available as as an e-book which I'm okay with because, you know, the pictures really, it really lends itself to being sort of, you know, it is a, you know, a book. It's on, uh, on real paper and with 250 images and all these writers. And again, most of the photographers are anonymous and they probably don't deserve to be anonymous. I suppose one could undertake trying to find uh, their names. There are, there are some, Charles Martin Conlon being, Charles Conlon being the most famous. We have a number of his pictures in here. But by and large, a lot of this writing and uh, a lot of these photographs, we'll never, never know who really generated it. But uh, they really uh, painted some masterpieces back in this era. So, 
Well, it's partially why we do these uh, these shows, because uh, we do want to sort of go back and sort of uh, touch on things that uh, are, are no longer with us, obviously the teams and the leagues themselves, but obviously the uh, some of the stories and the, the rationale behind them. And uh, I think you've certainly captured that with uh, with this book and, and some um, some dusty, I guess, memories of, of what uh, what the Dead Ball Era World Series is looked like and sounded like. And even though we didn't have any uh, audio or video to accompany us in those journeys. Right. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to, so to speak, spread the word, because ultimately, uh, and it's a phrase that was used uh, as the title of a book, uh, trying to honor the men in the glory of their times. And uh, that uh, that's certainly the case, uh, this book. And like I said, some were stars for a long time and others were just stars for a moment. They had their moment in the sun uh, just in the World Series and never again, never before, never after. As always, I learned something. And uh, in this particular uh, conversation, um, I must tell you that, uh, you know, old time baseball per se, uh, not necessarily my thing. I tend to sort of gravitate to more of the modern things and lots more pictures and video and audio. But, um, you know, again, we we are uh, we delve into these uh, these conversations because we're interested in teams and leagues that uh, are not around anymore. And again, if you consider yourself a fan of the Boston Red Sox, uh, the Oakland A's, the San Francisco Giants, the Atlanta Braves, the L.A. Dodgers. These are teams that go way back uh, into the beginnings of the history of baseball and teams uh, known then as in uh, in in order, the Boston Americans, the Philadelphia Athletics, the New York Giants, the Boston Braves and, of course, the Brooklyn Dodgers. These are all teams that uh, have heritage that live on today. And um, and I, this book is really interesting. Uh, it's called The World Series in the Dead Ball Era. And uh, the photography in here is pretty amazing because these are these are photos that are uh, either never been released before or have never really been in circulation until recently. Um, married with some just amazing writing from uh, newspapers at the time. And again, as we talked about in our conversation, the, the, these these writings were not necessarily sort of rat tat uh, you know, encapsulations, uh, encapsulations of the of the of the actual games themselves, uh, but they were these were really well written stories, right? From from authors that uh, wound up uh, uh, going into bigger and better things than simply just writing about sports. I mean, Ring Lardner and Grantland Rice and Damon Runyon, and I mean these are these are these are names of of, of literary times uh, from that era that uh, uh, you know got their start or continued in. Uh, writing about baseball and the, and the uh, the stories and the and the watercolor uh, sort of a flowery uh, writing about uh, about just how uh, dramatic and and interesting these uh, games were uh, it's just it's amazing and juxtaposed with the photography uh, it, it's a it's a pretty interesting book and again it's called the World Series in the Dead Ball Era a history in the words and pictures thank you of the writers and photographers of that era the uh, author and editor is Steve Steinberg and uh, that is published by Saint. Johan Press. Uh, you can find a link uh, to a copy of the book and you can buy it through our, our link there from Amazon uh, at our, w- our website at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up a little episode here and you'll be uh, whisked away to a link that will allow you to purchase that book and give us a little bit of love in the process. And I also recommend Steve's uh, website as well. It's stevesteinberg.net and Steinberg is spelled S-T-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, stevesteinberg.net. You'll find out more about this book. Uh, his uh, uh, biography of uh, 
the 1920s pitcher Urban Shocker, who pitched for the Browns and the uh, St. Louis and uh, the New York Yankees, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff that he's involved with with Sabre. And uh, I highly encourage you to uh, check that out early and often. Of course, please, our website, you got to go back and bookmark that, of course, and you haven't done so, shame on you. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you'll find all of our social links uh, and all of the uh, past episodes and uh, where you can follow us on social media. And of course, you want some shortcuts there, of course. Please go to Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And you also find us on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there as well. Uh, our thanks, as always, to our friends at Podfly Productions, uh, Eric Begay, Corey Coates, David Gregerson, of course, the inimitable Dr. Jerry Payne, who puts all these pieces together painstakingly, get it, every week. And uh, you can find out more about him and the, uh, the company at podfly.net. We can't do it without them, and we appreciate it. All right, thanks. I'm done. Thanks uh, so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, until then, take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.